leaning and depending on you, O God, and you alone. Now we pray that you would open our eyes, that we will see wonderful things from your word. We pray that you would bless the preparation, the proclamation of your word. We pray for Holy Ghost power as we preach and as we hear from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our series of sermons through the book of Acts, I invite you to turn with me once again to Acts chapter 15, and I want to shine this demonic spotlight on verses 38 through 40. The text reads, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. I want to preach today from the subject, Paul and Barnabas, good news from bad failures. Paul and Barnabas, good news from bad failures. Today's scripture lesson sheds light on the reality of failure among the people of God. Failure can be described as a letdown, a breakdown, a crash, collapse, disappointment, or malfunction. Well, that's exactly what happened as Paul and Barnabas, two high-profile leaders in the church, failed as they prepared to depart on their second missionary journey. Now, quite frankly, these are one of those passages when you're preaching through a series that you might be tempted to skip over. Looking at the fact that two high-profile leaders in the church failed miserably as they prepared to depart on the second missionary journey. Acts 36 through 41 reveals what happened. Paul said to Barnabas, look, let's go back and visit the brethren in every city where we have preached the word of God. And let's go back and see how they are doing. Barnabas was eager to go with Paul and to retrace their steps through Cilicia and go back to Cyprus and the island of Paphos. Surely they decided to go back, I'm sure, desired to go back and check on Governor Sergius Paulus to see how he was progressing in the faith. Certainly they desired to visit Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, where a young man who had been crippled from his mother's womb was healed under the power of God by Paul. Certainly they wanted to go back and see how he was doing and how people were growing in the faith. They wanted to go through Derby, the city where Paul had been stoned, perhaps to remind the saints there at Derby of the power of God to heal, save, and and deliver. Barnabas was eager to go and, and according to verse 37, desired to take John Mark along with him. You remember John Mark. He was a young man that they had brought along. He was a relative of, 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 of uh, Barnabas and, and Barnabas wanted to take him along uh, with them. But in verse 38, Paul had a difference of opinion. You know how it's like to have a difference of opinion, don't you? 
Well, Paul was skeptical of taking John Mark along on this journey because John Mark had departed from them. In other words, John Mark had deserted them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark was with them, but he left them. He deserted them and left the mission field. Well, no details are given by Luke as to why young John Mark left the mission field. We can only speculate that perhaps uh, the confrontation with Elon Musk, the sorcerer, uh, was a bit much for him to handle. Maybe he became frightened as he anticipated more dangerous and perhaps even brutal encounters on the mission field. Or maybe this young man was just homesick and wanted to go back and see Mama. Maybe he was simply homesick. We don't know for certain why he quit, why he deserted, why he dropped out, why he left the mission field. But we do know uh, that Paul did not want him back. Paul wasn't singing along with Michael Jackson, I want you back. No, rather Paul was singing, hit the road, Jack. Verse 38 tells us that Paul insisted that the team not take John Mark with them, the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone to work with them. Now, mind you, think about this. Paul was a hard-charging, Paul was a hard-charging, mission-minded ex-Pharisee. His background training, and expectations, his background training and expectation includes attention to detail, discipline, and devotion to duty. Now, today is we celebrating Veterans Day, and, and that's part of what it's about. It's celebrating people who served in the U.S. Armed Forces who represents discipline, represents detail, and devotion to do that. So Paul's attitude was like a good soldier. You stay on your post no matter what until your commanding officer decides to relieve you. When you are in the military, you just don't walk away because walking away could put your comrades in danger. So that's how that's how Paul was thinking. He had that strict Pharisaic background. In fact, y'all, if Paul were here today and if Paul in that time would have taken the disc or some other personality inventory assessment, his personality would be defined as dominant and task focused. But now, on the other hand, Barnabas came from a wealthy background in Cyprus. Because of his family, economic, and social standing, life would have been a lot less intense for him. Barnabas grew up on Cyprus, which was a laid-back beach resort kind of town. Barnabas would have gone to high school and doing lunch, gone surfing. So his, his... he, he, on the personality test, profile test, Barnabas' personality would have been defined as supportive 
And instead of being task-oriented, Barnabas would have been people-oriented. In fact, Barnabas uh, was, was an encourager. That was his spiritual gift. He was, a, he was an encourager. Barnabas was more of a people person. Paul focused on the task. Barnabas focused on the people. And so, and so he was an encourager. In fact, it was Barnabas who had encouraged Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, by speaking up for him when the apostles initially refused to accept him. And then again in Acts 11, 25, and 26, when he went to Tarsus to get Paul and took Paul back to Antioch so that Paul could work alongside him in ministry. But now what we see in the text is serious conflict in the making. Look at verses 39 through 41. The text reads, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God kind of showed you where the church weighed in on the matter too, doesn't it? Notice what the text says. Notice what the text says. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Watch this. Being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, y'all, the truth is, Paul and Barnabas failed, and their failure isn't pretty. Well, sometimes God permits things that are not so pretty to be publicized in order to help those of us who are serious about following Jesus avoid the same pitfalls. I find it interesting that God didn't cover it up. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't, he didn't try to paint these guys as perfect people. He painted their failures. And part of the reason is God wanted us to see their failures and not make the same mistakes. And so I want us to just look at for, for their failures and, and take a closer look at their failures. First, they failed to pray. Paul and Barnabas failed to pray. Look at the text. Nowhere on the scriptural radar during this conflict is prayer mentioned. It's not mentioned individually. It's not mentioned that they prayed together. It's not mentioned that anybody else prayed. Paul, Barnabas, nor Luke mentions anything about, about taking this critical, this crucial this crisis matter before God in prayer. No, nowhere on this radar, nowhere in this story, nowhere in this scripture, nowhere in this report is there any word about them praying individually or together over this conflict. Now here's a point to ponder. Before Paul and Barnabas left for the mission field, Luke records then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them they sent them away Paul and Barnabas were all about this prayer 
It was prayer that launched the team in the first place. Surely, if prayer was on the radar as the team prepared to dissolve their relationship, Luke would have recorded it. After all, he recorded when they began the relationship, he would have had recorded when the relationship was about to end. The sad reality is that Paul and Barnabas allowed, don't miss this, they allowed their passionate desires to push prayer out of its rightful place. Notice verse 37. Now Barnabas was, underscore, determined to take with them John Mark. John called Mark. Barnabas was determined to take John Mark, but no prayer. Might I add here that determination without prayer is extremely dangerous. Our passions without prayer are extremely dangerous. Let's be fair in the text. Look at verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pathphalia and had not gone with them to work. Notice, Paul insisted that John Mark be left behind, but no prayer. And so we have determination, but no prayer. We have persistence, no prayer. We got a whole lot of passion on the radar, but no prayer. Well, let me reiterate the point. Insistence without prayer is dangerous. So you see the reality is the absence of prayer is asking for pain. Hill writer Joseph Scriven states the matter in like fashion. In a hymn he wrote entitled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You remember that? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace. Don't miss this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Paul and Barnabas were about to embark on a lifetime of pain because they failed to bathe their conflict as well as the decision They were about to make in prayer. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. We as born-again believers in Jesus Christ need to be ever mindful in our fast-paced, hectic world. We need to be ever mindful in a world filled with technology and filled with smart people We need to be ever mindful, ever alert, ever vigilant 
to bathe the choices we make in prayer. And sometimes that can be challenging, especially when we are in the heat of the battle, in the midst of the moment, passionate about what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. Yet it always behooves us to talk with God. It's always in our best interest to talk with God. It doesn't matter what the experts say, talk with God. Doesn't matter what the research say, talk with God. Doesn't matter what the polls say, talk with God. It doesn't matter what the statistics say, talk with God. God. It doesn't even matter what friends and family members say. Ultimately, we ought to be talking with God. Why? We talk to God. Why? Because God is wise beyond our imagination. God is wiser than the MIT graduates. God is wiser than Harvard and Yale and, and fam, you and Cookman graduates, God is smarter than all of the professors, all of the students put together. We ought to be talking to God. God is smarter than the news analysts. God knows more than NBC, ABC, Fox News, CBS. God knows it all. They only knows, know a little bit. God sees the whole picture like an airline pilot. He or she can only see a little bit. They can only hear a little bit. But the flight controller, the air traffic controller is sitting in the tower looking to, at the whole picture before, in front and behind, places where the pilot cannot see. That's why pilots talk to the control tower. Pilot flying that plane, he loved mama, but he ain't talking to mama. He loved daddy, but he ain't asking daddy's opinion. Now he or she is talking to the air traffic controller that sees what's ahead. Matter of fact, they see them storms coming. And sometimes they put those planes in a holding pattern saying that a storm is coming. You need to hold up right here. It behooves us to talk with God who is wise beyond our imaginations. Talk with God who knows what our future holds. God knows best where our children ought to go to college. God knows best who we ought to marry. God knows best. We ought to be talking to God who is willing to order our steps in his word. We ought to be talking to God who desires to see us succeed on the mountaintop instead of flopping and flounding and failing in the valleys. We ought to be talking to God. But not only did Paul and Barnabas fail to pray, they failed to pause. They failed to take a deep breath, count to ten, push back, recess, or call a timeout. They both were eager to get on with the mission. They both were 
enthusiastic about returning to the places they had led people to faith in Jesus Christ. They were both excited about revisiting the established churches and helping the newly appointed pastors do ministry. They both were highly motivated, energized leaders. However, they were now at a place where they needed to settle down push the pause button, and wait on God. They were at the place where my Aunt May used to tell me when I was hyped and fired up about something or angry at some of my friends or upset with a teacher at school. She used to say to me sometimes, Linnell, just cool your jets. She said, just settle down. Just cool your jets. Well, Paul and Barnabas were at a place where they needed just cool their jets. They needed just settle down. Is there anybody here, you've been in a place where you needed just cool your jets? You needed just settle down. Sometimes I may would say, Linnell, you need to go sit over there and get yourself together. Is there anybody here in this sanctuary? You needed to just go sit down someplace. And get yourself together, not at the meeting, not at the office. You needed to go somewhere by yourself, get with God, and get yourself together. Well, here's the practical application, y'all. There are times when we come to those critical junctions, those crucial crossroads, or those important intersections where we need to push pause and wait on further instructions from God. And don't let people push you into making decisions when you need to be in a season of waiting on God. Don't let people rush your decisions. Don't let people's emotions and passions and enthusiasm rob you of spending quality time alone with God, pausing, waiting to hear what God wants to say to you. Waiting on the Lord has some, some, some serious advantages, y'all. Waiting on the Lord gives the Holy Spirit the time to settle us down, cool us down, and calm us down. Anybody ever been there? When we wait on the Lord, he intervenes, he intercedes, he interrupts our hot-headed and hard-hearted decisions and guides us away from making choices that will leave lifelong scars and regrets. Waiting on God gives time for his plan to unfold, to be revealed before we move on. One of the things I enjoy about watching football is I enjoy watching smart players play. You know what smart players do, whether they are quarterbacks, running backs, or, 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 or wide receivers, or defensive ends, they have this training, and some of them have this built-in instinct to just wait for a play to unfold. Because waiting just a split second can be the difference between the hole opening up and a touchdown, or the hole being closed and a lost play. They had that ability just to just sit in the pocket sometime and just watch 
and just wait. It seems like an eternity, but the halfback is sitting back there, and he's watching his lineman go to work. He's watching the, the, the offensive line push back the opening, and as soon as he sees the opening, he goes. Sometimes, y'all, we got to pause because the hole ain't open yet. We got to pause. Because the right supervisor ain't in place yet. We got to pause because the right person to help us is not at the office yet. Sometimes we got to pause and wait on God. Sometimes we get too big of a hurry. We try to open doors ourselves. We need to pause and wait on God to open the right door. At one point in his life, David, the greatest king of Israel, was going through some stuff. David went through a whole lot of things in his life, a whole lot of hardships, uh, troubles and mountains and valleys. Just read the Psalms and you can feel some of David's pain. Well, at this one particular time, he was going through something. We don't know exactly what it was, but whatever Whatever it was that David was dealing with, whatever was bothering him, he realized that he needed to push the pause button and wait on God. And notice what he wrote in Psalm 41 through 3. David penned the words, I waited patiently for the Lord. Are y'all tracking with me? He said, I, I waited patiently for the Lord. He also, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. David said, God heard him while David was waiting. God heard him and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to my God. Many will see it in and we trust in him. David said, I waited on God. And God came through. I waited on God. And God came to my rescue. I waited on God. And God worked it out. I waited on God. And God encouraged my heart. That's why he wrote, wait on the Lord. Be a good courage. Don't get in a hurry. Wait on the Lord. Wait on him. But not only did Paul and Barnabas fail to pray and pause, they also failed to publicize. They failed to publicize. What do you mean, pastor? Well, they failed to get the right resources involved who could help them. The resources to help them would, of course, have been the apostles. They knew that because the apostles could help them, because the apostles had Peter and James had just met with them at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 6 through 21, and helped them resolve the conflict they had with the Judaizers who were teaching false doctrine that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised along with receiving Jesus in order to be saved. So instead of going back to the apostles for help, they fought in a vacuum like two heavyweight prize fighters without a referee. Y'all, 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 y'all imagine Ali and Foreman going at it 
without a referee. Y'all, y'all imagine basketball players going at it for four quarters without a referee. Think about football teams on the field going at it without a referee. You're asking for trouble. So here's the reality, y'all. There are times in the life of every church when well-meaning members have conflict. I ain't been in a church yet where well-meaning people didn't have conflict. And if people are looking for a church where there is no conflict, they got to wait until Jesus comes back. Because there will be times in the church, in all churches, in every congregation, don't be set back, don't be turned off, don't be discouraged, don't be disqualified. There are times in every church, no matter how Holy Ghost feel, no matter how good the teaching, the preaching, and the Bible study, there will be times of conflict. The times when church members won't reach the same conclusion on things. Times when, times when church members, in all honesty, have no hidden agendas and not trying to p- push their own agenda. There's times when church members want to reach the same goal. They, they want to defeat the same enemy. We want to push back the same darkness. We want to participate in the same evangelism. We want to put, partake in the same discipleship and promote the same mission efforts. There are times we want to do those things, yet conflict can occur. Conflict occurs when ideas different on the strategy or the methods of getting the job done. Isn't that something? Y'all will, y'all, y'all will be surprised what churches have split over, but then again, you won't be. Folk get upset and mad over trivial stuff. It's just conflict, y'all. That's what happened to Paul and Barnabas. They both agreed that they should go on a second missionary journey, but they had different ideas about John Mark's participation. It it wasn't really about the mission, y'all. It was about the methodology. It was more about the methodology than it was about the mission. They both wanted to go on the mission. They just couldn't agree as to how to carry the mission out. So here's a major part of Scripture solution to conflict resolution. All right, here's a major part of the scripture solution to conflict resolution. Publicizing. Now, let me preface what I say when I say publicize because this sermon is reaching more and more broader audience than just a Good Hope Church family. So let me be, let me be specific. Let, let me be plain. When I say publicizing, I'm not saying just tell anybody and everybody. Because anybody and everybody is not qualified or prepared or equipped to help you deal with conflict. Don't just invite anybody and everybody up in your business and up in the church's business. 
Don't publicize your concerns on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. That's not the publicity I'm talking about. That only makes, in most cases, matters worse. Rather, what I'm talking about is publicize your concerns to godly, mature, trustworthy, and experienced church leadership who have your best interest in heart as well as the best interest of the church in mind. Make sure the people you get to help you have their own house in order first. But not only did Paul and Barnabas fail to pray, pause, and publicize, there's one more thing I want to point out. They failed to protect. You see, by not reconciling their differences and even parting company in a peaceful manner, Paul and Barnabas failed to protect the image of the church as a place where the fruit of God's spirit reigns supreme. They failed to protect the image of the church that the church should be a place where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control among members reign supreme in every situation and under every and all condition. Look again at verse 39 which states, Then the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. Imagine, y'all. Just, just imagine. The, the, the outward damage, image damage. When the critics of the church, when the skeptics of the church, when the naysayers of the church, when the haters of the church got wind of the way these two brothers in Christ were carrying on, the way they were acting up and acting out towards each other, the naysayers, the haters, had a field day. Imagine how they might have used that negative behavior between Christians, between Paul and Barnabas, in an attempt to defame and damage, decimate, and devastate the ministry of the church. Now, that's the outside. But imagine how those newborn again believers in Jesus Christ, how those young tender babes in Christ, those Gentiles that both of them had participated in, leading them to Christ, imagine how they must have felt when their mentors and their models couldn't even work out conflict among themselves. Here's a truism. Every born-again believer in Jesus Christ has a part to play in the protecting of the image of God's church. If you're a member of the church, and I'm a member of the church, it's our responsibility to protect the image of the church from without and from within. I think one of the most nonsensical statements I've heard from a professional athlete was when Charles Barkley said, this is pricketism now, that he was not a role model. Well, you're a role model whether you want to be or not. 
The pastor is a role model. The associate pastors are a role model. Our spouses are role models. Our deacons are role models. If you're a member of God's church, you are a role model, whether you like it or not. People are watching. They're judging what the churches lack by how we act at school, at work, at home, even with each other. The image of the church is to reflect the love of Jesus, even amid internal challenges and unpleasant conditions. We are called by God to work things out in ways that will bring glory and honor to God and not smear the name of Jesus and his church. Now to say that conflict doesn't happen is nonsensical. It does. But when it does, we are duty-bound. We are charged by God to work it out in a way that will bring God's name, glory, and honor and not tear up his church. Those living outside a relationship with Jesus Christ are helplessly and hopelessly watching as their world spins out of control. They're watching. To see what the church does, the one place they should be able to count on finding love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control as people work through their issues and conflicts, it ought to be the church. Now, can I just tell y'all something? You cannot expect a whole lot out of Washington, D.C., so stop putting your hope in that. It ain't going to be no peace. It ain't going to be no getting along. It ain't going to be no love, joy, patience, and self-control. Don't look there for it. Look at the church. People are looking at the church. They have become disappointed and disillusioned. They're looking at the church, and it's our responsibility to make sure they see the right thing when they look. All right, but wait a minute, lest we leave this place, this sanctuary today with our heads hung down and feeling a little bad and just depressed. There's good news from the failures. Somebody ask you what pastor preached about. You say he just preached about good news from bad failures. Good news from bad failures. Okay, let me fix it up for you real quick so you can, we get this and we can, we can go. The first piece of good news from bad failure is that God has a unique way, a unique way of bringing fruit from failure. That's the first thing. That's the first bit of good news. God, ha- Only God can do it. Only God can bring fruit from failure. Look at verses 39 through 41, 39b to 41. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but, cho- but, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended the, to the brethren by the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. What Lucas pointed out is that God took a bad situation and brought something good out of it. God took a rift in a relationship. God took a breakdown in communication. God took an unpleasant parting between true brothers 
and turned it into a means by which to grow and strengthen his church. How so? You do the math. Instead of one mission team, they're now two. Oh, I know y'all got it. We got some mathematicians in here. Two plus two equals four. Two mission teams, that means twice the amount of territory is covered in less amount of time. Can y'all see God at work? The fruit of failure is that the gospel is moving now faster and further. That means more people are hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means more people are being saved and added to the church, which means more people are, are, are being trained as disciples, which means that more trained disciples means more mission teams, and more mission team more means more spreading of the gospel, and more spreading of the gospel means continuous church growth and strengthening of the church. Isn't that amazing, y'all? God has a new, a unique way of bringing fruit from failure. I thought about grandparents this morning on the way to church. I thought about grandparents, how God uses the fruit of our failure to bless our grandchildren. Well, second.